You're listening to KCBS In-Depth. Everyone is facing these huge life-changing moments. The people, places, and issues the Bay Area is talking about. I think it really is important for folks to reach out to people so they can know that they're not alone. We don't know how long all this is going to go on for. And from an emotional standpoint, psychologically, that's a really difficult, difficult thing to grapple with. This is KCBS In-Depth. This past week marks 100 years since the 19th Amendment was ratified. It's remembered as the moment when women throughout the United States were granted the right to vote. In fact, though, the gains were, for the most part, enjoyed by white women. As for women of color, full access to the ballot box would not be realized for decades to come. And so on this 100-year anniversary, many are asking for a fuller story of women's suffrage to be told. I'm Keith Menconi, joined this time by KCBS reporter Melissa Colross. Welcome to the program, Melissa Colross. Thank you very much, Keith. This is KCBS In-Depth, and today in the program, we're going to take a look back at the suffrage movement in California, what it achieved, what it left unfinished, and also consider how the legacy of activism that the suffrage movement helped create is impacting politics today. First up, though, we're going to be taking a look back at that history. To bring us that, we're joined now by writer Elaine Ellenson. She is the co-author of the book, Wherever There's a Fight, How Runaway Slaves, Suffragists, Immigrants, Strikers, and Poets Shaped Civil Liberties in California. Welcome to the program, Elaine Ellenson. Thank you so much for inviting me. So, Elaine, tell us a little bit about the status of women in California when the state was founded. What kind of rights did women have? Well, you know, it's very interesting. Many people, including women in California, don't realize that women in California actually won the vote in 1911, almost a full decade before the passage of the 19th Amendment. And women in the suffrage movement at that time may never have imagined that our two senators would be women, that the Speaker of the House would be a woman from California, and the Vice uh, President-elect would be a candidate, uh, a woman of color from, from the Bay Area. So likewise, we have to imagine what it must have been like for them to have the tenacity and the chutzpah Uh, to try to get men to vote for their right to vote. Um, The California Constitution, which was in 1849, just one year after the Seneca Falls 1848 Convention on on women's rights, uh, was really significant in that it gave women uh, rights that they didn't have in other states. Uh, Women were allowed to own property in their own names. They were allowed to keep their property uh, and they were allowed to get divorced and and have property after the divorce. Um, It's interesting because um, this is probably a result not so much of altruism, but of the gold rush, which brought many men to California and they were looking to attract women and not just any women, but women of property. So who? And you know, you, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, pl- please continue. Well, you were asking about, um, you know, what was the situation for women? So many women were guaranteed these rights uh, by the Constitution. In fact, um, the Constitution had other important elements. Uh, slavery was outlawed. Uh, the first Constitution was in English and Spanish. Many people don't realize that our official languages were both English and Spanish. But of course, many, many women were excluded. Um, Most significantly, Native American women who were subjected 
to indentured servitude, um, the abduction of their children, uh, Chinese women who were trafficked here and openly sold into sexual slavery on the barracoons or the docks in San Francisco, and uh, African-American women, because although California was a free state, there was a huge and dangerous loophole in California law that if a slaveholder could prove he was just passing through, and sometimes that was passing through for years, uh, he was allowed by law to keep people in slavery. Uh, so these conditions for many women, especially women of color, led to a lot of resistance and activism. So speaking about activism, who were the main players in terms of the push for to get women the vote? Who were some of the most significant activists here in California? Well, in the original uh, move for uh, women's uh, right to suffrage, which took place in 1896, it was mostly women who were sort of elite upper class society women who were organized in clubs. Um, they felt that they had ties to the legislature and to male elected officials, and so that their influence would mean that they could get the vote. Um, and yet they were immediately rebuffed. So at first they were offered by the legislature to have uh, the right to vote for uh, educational uh, offices only, not nothing else, but for Board of Education, for example. And that passed the legislature, but it was vetoed by the governor because he said that he couldn't trust that women behind the privacy of the curtain of the voting booth might just vote for the whole ticket. So he, he vetoed that. Uh, another time, a group of 50 women went to the legislature to lobby and um, they were told that they should go home and look after their girls because they might be walking the streets. So it wasn't a very um, powerful campaign. And in fact, uh, the measure lost in 1896, three to one. Um, part of that was due to the liquor lobby because they had a massive campaign saying that if women had the right to vote, men wouldn't be able to buy liquor or to go to saloons or, uh, and so they poured a lot of money into the campaign. It wasn't until um, after the earthquake in 1906 that organizing began again. And it's interesting, Melissa, because it began in a very different way. Um, the movement was uh, more addressed by immigrant women, by working class women, and they became much bolder in their tactics. Uh, for example, the Chronicle and the Examiner were both very anti-suffrage. And so uh, women uh, made their own printing press and put out their own newspaper and uh, put out leaflets and brochures and posters. They came out of the parlors and into the streets. In fact, the first uh, woman-led suffrage march was in 1908 in Oakland, when about 300 women and some men marched on the Republican convention, uh, demanding that they include a plank in their platform for women's suffrage. Um, the Republicans did not, but the march drew great attention. Uh, there was organizing in the labor movement. Um, the Wage Earner Suffrage League uh, organized a, a float in the Labor Day Parade and got Samuel Gompers, who was the head of the AFL, who came out 
uh, to San Francisco for that parade to endorse suffrage. Um, so there were many, many um, activists. Just want to remind listeners real quick that they are listening to KCBS In-Depth, our weekly deep dive into the events and trends shaping life in the Bay Area and beyond. I'm Keith Menconi, joined by Melissa Colross, and today on the program, as we mark the 100 years since the ratification of the 19th Amendment, we consider the past, present, and future of women in politics. Our guest right now is writer Elaine Ellenson, the co-author of Wherever There's a Fight, How Runaway Slaves, Suffragists, Immigrants, Strikers, and Poets Shaped Civil Liberties in California. And uh, Elaine, as we kind of hinted at the beginning of the program, there has been a little bit of a rethinking of the legacy of the suffrage movement, and we've seen a lot of folks commenting on that so far this year, especially commenting on the fact that for a lot of women in 1920, just because there was this constitutional change didn't necessarily mean that they overnight gained access to the polling booth. There was still poll taxes. There was still uh, all, all manner of ways to keep women of color away from the polls. What did that look like here in California? I mean, much of the Jim Crow legacy was in the South, but uh, were, were there barriers in California as well for women of color? There were, but I don't think it was as pronounced as it was in the East Coast. Um, largely because of the organizing of African-American women, uh, Chinese-American women, who played a major role in the suffrage movement, although not necessarily in the mainstream suffrage movement. So African-American men in California who were organized into the Franchise League and the Colored Convention were probably the strongest advocates among men um, for women's right to vote. And there were many African-American women who organized in clubs and through their churches uh, for suffrage. For example, um, Sarah Massey Overton organized both in the African-American community and then organized in San Jose, an interracial suffrage league. Uh, A Chinese-American woman, Tai Leung, who had been active in fighting the trafficking of Chinese women that I, uh, I spoke about earlier, became an activist in the Chinese American community speaking at rallies in Cantonese and putting out leaflets in Chinese. Um, She actually became the first Chinese American woman to vote. Um, Another interesting woman is Selena Solomons. Uh, She thought that the uh, mainstream suffrage movement was too society led. So she opened the Votes for Women Club where she served lunch to waitresses and shop girls uh, and laundresses. And then she organized them to walk precincts with her and um, to go to the immigrant neighborhoods. Um, She even led a sit-in in in, uh, City Hall, San Francisco City Hall. So I'm not saying it was an ideal situation, but it was definitely not as polarized as in the rest of the country where there were very deep chasms um, along racial lines um, in the suffrage movement. Elaine, thanks very much. And along those lines, we're actually now going to bring in Amy Allison. We'll bring her into the conversation. Amy's a political organizer and activist and founder of She the People. That's an advocacy group advocating for women of color in politics and representative democracy. Amy, thank you so much for joining KCBS In-Depth. Thanks for having me. So let's talk a little bit about women in politics and engagement and women of color. How unfinished is the business of suffrage? Well, the reason I founded She the People was uh, really that in the suffragette movement that was really taken over and or overtaken by white supremacy, 
and uh, racists who embraced fairness when it came to to white women, uh, but uh, uh, really sold out African American women and other women of color who had uh, really labored uh, to bring uh, the vote to to all women. And this betrayal of trust opened a rift between women of color and white feminists that persists to this day. Uh, part of what is you know the the goal in 2020 is to say, look. Uh, because race defines how people vote more powerfully than gender, and it has been that way for decades, there isn't like a women's movement, an overall women's movement, without really looking at uh, the difference between um, Black, Latina, Asian American, and Indigenous women versus white women uh, as political actors uh, in, in the issues and what drives voters. And I think that's where, uh, where we are 100 years later, that white women benefited from the um, activism of women of color in order to secure the vote. Uh, but it wasn't until the Voting Rights Act and the Immigration and uh, uh, Act in 65 that gave or guaranteed women of color regular access to the ballot box. And I think that's very important because uh, women of color's um, voting and political work then as of and as is now is really deeply tied uh, to the movement uh, for racial justice for economic justice and continues uh, 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 to this day. And along those lines, just speaking anecdotally for a moment, my mother is an 86-year-old black woman, and she I was just having this conversation with her. She retired to Hawaii, so around the time of Hawaii's primary, and she said something striking to me, which is, I would crawl to vote. And she references um, the civil rights era and people like Medgar Evers and the, the fight for um, for uh, the right for, for black women and for people of color to vote. Um, do you find that kind of engagement continuing uh, among generations? Again, I'll mention my mother is 86. Do you find that younger women of color would crawl to vote? I, I so identify, Melissa, with, with that. I remember my dad taking me uh, to uh, vote before I was eligible to vote. He said, Amy, you will vote every time. Our people died for this right. And first I thought it was just my family or maybe something my dad said. But in my work, where I talk to uh, black women in particular all over the country, there's a commonality in terms of how seriously we take our civil rights, how much weight we put on it, um, that from the very beginning, um, the quest for black women uh, uh, to secure the right to vote was deeply tied to empowering communities to uh, combat the racial terror uh, that uh, was directed at Black and other communities of color uh, in the, the wake of the Civil War. And the seriousness by which uh, Black women in particular take uh, voting still persists, persists today. And I, I'll say in 2020, Black and uh, Brown women are most likely to be targeted for voter suppression. And that's in states where it'll determine you know, this, the results of uh, this year's presidential contest, Senate contest, and these are states with a long history of both slavery, uh, Jim Crow, and civil rights violations, states like Texas, Arizona, Georgia, Florida. And in those states where there are active voter suppression uh, practices and uh, women of color have often 
been prevented even after in the wake of the, the 65 Voting Rights Act in the wake of that still uh, have challenges voting and getting their voting votes counted. What we hear from um, black women like us is I'm gonna crawl through glass, I'll do whatever it takes, I'll stand in line. And we saw in the primaries in a state like Texas or a state like Georgia in the primaries just about uh, a month and a half ago, you had uh, women sitting in line for five hours with little children because that's what they're willing to do. And I think that that's born out of both an understanding that uh, citizen rights were hard, hard fought, uh, the right is tenuous, and you must show up uh, for the community. It's our greatest and most patriotic duty. And uh, it's, uh, it's beyond like a political thing or a kind of a once or twice a year thing. It is deeply cultural uh, for black women. And um, I think that that's uh, something that, you know, was set in place 100 years ago that we could say is the, the long um, line of the activism to get the right to vote and deeply tied to uh, the sense that we're going to fight uh, for our communities uh, for racial justice and economic justice and gender justice. Well, let's trace out that long line of activism in just a second. Uh, real quick, first, I want to remind listeners that they are listening to KCBS In Depth. I am Keith Manconi, once again joined by Melissa Colross. Today we are discussing the legacy and the unfinished business of women's suffrage 100 years after the ratification of the 19th Amendment. Joined once again by author Elaine Ellison, as well as Amy Allison, the founder of She the People. It's a group advocating for women of color in politics. Turning things back to you, Elaine Ellison, since we're talking about that long trajectory of uh, activism. What has your work shown in terms of how we can trace that line uh, in California from the, the suffrage movement that's now uh, took place in California, in particular, um, more than 100 years ago? How can we trace the line up to the modern movements that we're seeing today? Yeah, it's, it's a very proud legacy. And um, I really appreciate the work that Amy Allison's group, uh, She the People, has done. It's, it's so important to illuminate uh, the activism. And it, it did, I think, in many ways in California, stem from the activism from the suffrage movement in many different kinds of communities. So, for example, during World War II, um, when many Black women were brought here from the South to work in the shipyards as Rosie the Riveters. Had, they still had to fight uh, segregation outside of the shipyards, even though the shipyards by executive order were desegregated. The childcare was not, the housing was not. And so women like um, Betty Reed Soskin, who worked in um, a union of shipyard workers, will tell you so strongly about how Black women had to fight against um, segregation in Richmond and in other California communities at that time. Um, labor rights, uh, we have leaders like Dolores Huerta, um, you know, championing uh, labor rights, especially for farm workers uh, uh, in the 1960s and 70s, uh, which of course still goes on today. Um, reproductive rights, LGBT rights, um, all of these movements that, you know, Many grew in California, as as Wallace Stegner said. You know, California is just like the rest of the country, only more so. Um, many of these movements grew in California and have definitely spread um, across the United States. 
And as these movements grow and as this activism grows and as this political engagement grows, what about varying ideologies? Are there differences in the way um, women, women of color who might have different uh, political affiliations uh, engage in, in the vote, in the voting process and engage in the political landscape? I, I, I would argue that um, because race is such a driver in how people show up on voting day, um, that there is a difference. Um, I, you know, we've been working with uh, women of color in California and across the country, and we conducted a series of listening sessions most recently where we asked women of color what they want. I mean, the driving force, uh, this, is a, this is a fastest growing group of voters. Uh, you know, black women are the most loyal Democrats with the highest turnout history um, of voters and they're the margin of victory uh, for Democrats all across the country and including in California, women of color are 25% of the electorate. Uh, so uh, Asian American women are the fastest growing group. Latinas are huge in, in, uh, in terms of vote eligible numbers. And I say all that to say, here's a massive electoral force with, then um, uh, the thing that holds this group in common is that on every, uh, you know, measure from economic to health uh, to other measures. Uh, this is a group who's doing, who knows what, the, what it's like to feel the pain um, of the government's policies and practices, to be targeted, to be sidelined, um, to not have the opportunities afforded, to, especially to the white guys. And it shaped politics and how people show up um, in the voting booth. Um, this is the most uh, socially, uh, civically progressive group of voters. Uh, whereas if you contrast it with white uh, women voters, a uh, hundred years later after winning the right to vote, not only is this group not the highest vote turnout, but they are uh, uh, a conservative voting block and growing more so every year. So there is difference um, on race and how, and the issues um, in the leadership, which is I think you put it in context, uh, winning the right to vote uh, uh, in 65, and how much women of color are stepping forward in this moment in order to both be recognized, seen and heard as a constituency, but also insist that we're ready to govern. And as the least represented uh, group of citizens at every level of government, um, I, I see that as a place where um, constituency meets the power of candidacy uh, as a look forward. And what's the next hundred years look like? That, that's what I think women of color are looking toward. And in this moment of history along those lines, and I'll put this question actually to both of you, Amy, perhaps you can go first, and then Elaine, we've got Kamala Harris. She is the first woman of color to be nominated by a major party for vice president. Regardless of how the election turns out, regardless of whether, of whomever wins, what does this moment mean or what could this moment mean for representation in government and for continuing to galvanize women and get them engaged in the political process, whether it's by running for office or getting to the ballot box or sitting and organizing among themselves and their neighbors? You can't overstate how significant it is that uh, Senator Harris is uh, accepted her nomination as VP. We have literally, as women of color, never been here before. And it's a powerful, it's powerfully symbolically uh, that uh, uh, Kamala Harris is, is the first woman of color to be at the top of a major party ticket. But it's also 
uh, powerful because as a constituency and as those who would be the margin of victory, it deepens enthusiasm and investment in, in the campaign. And we saw when, when, when Kamala Harris took the stage and she began by uh, crediting the black women and the women of color who had fought for generations, fought, uh, struggled, sacrificed, bled for the possibility of her being in that, in, in that place. And uh, she gave credit, she invited in people, especially in the wake of all the uh, protests demanding racial justice, she's inviting people of all race and genders in to a legacy that was firmly established by women of color, particularly black women, that was a pro-democracy movement that goes back to the, 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 the history far back in the development uh, of our government and in our politics. She's a symbol, but she's also a person that um, demonstrates that, look, we're making positive progress toward a reflective democracy, not everywhere, um, but we see it's not just Kamala Harris as a VP candidate, but it's also the record number of women of color who are running for Senate, Congress, and down ballot this year. Um, it, this is a underrepresented group, but, but, but the bench is so deep and the, the, the urgency is so great that women of color are stepping up and uh, into public service, into running for office uh, in a way that we haven't seen in the past. And it's been more possible for there to be a shift in our culture, not just in our politics, in our culture, um, that uh, women of color will lead. And so I, I um, have been, you know, all week sort of just really sitting with how much is evolving and possible now, despite all the other bad news that's, that's happening. And I, I would absolutely agree with that. I mean, this is such a bleak time because of the pandemic and, and the economic crisis and the racial injustice. It, and just when Kamala was nominated and accepted, it was such a bright moment and of possibility. I was remembering in 2018, when a whole new group of women were voted into Congress, the first Native American women, the first Muslim women, uh, Doris Matsui, who was born behind barbed wire when her family and 120,000 other Japanese Americans were incarcerated during World War II, they came to the State of the Union all wearing white. And when they were asked, uh, Representative Brenda Lawrence, who was the president then of the Congressional Black Caucus said, today we stand together wearing white in solidarity with the women of the suffrage movement who refused to take no for an answer. We will be seen. And as Amy said, you know, now people of color, women of color in the highest offices are being seen and will be leading this country. All right. An awful lot to keep in mind right there. We are going to have to round out the program right now, though. We have been speaking today to writer Elaine Ellenson. She, once again, is the co-author of Wherever There's a Fight, How Runaway Slaves, Suffragist Immigrants, Strikers, and Poets Shaped Civil Liberties in California. Elaine Ellenson, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. We were joined as well by Amy Allison, a political organizer and activist and the founder of She the People. It's a group advocating for women of color in politics. Amy Allison, thanks to you as well. Thanks for having me. And co-hosting with me today was my colleague, Melissa Kalross. Thank you for joining me as well, Melissa. Keith, thank you very much. Always, always a pleasure to be part of the program. And thank you all for listening. For KCBS and In-Depth, I'm Keith McConey. Stay safe, be well. We'll see you next time. 
You've been listening to KCBS In-Depth. Get every episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcast platforms. Visit kcbsradio.com for more news and interviews. We are the Bay Area's news station, KCBS.